I, I get the privilege, I'm introducing our, our speaker this morning, and uh, I'm actually really excited, and I think we're in for a real treat. So some of you will know Anthony and Katie Hilda. So they've actually been around our family now for the best part of a year, and uh, it's been fun to get to know them and uh, discover the riches that they carry. Um, of course, it's been a season of settling in for them. Uh, I've particularly been working with Anthony on a few initiatives, ministries we're cooking up for 2019, which, watch this space, we'll, we'll, we'll talk to you. But they, they probably, they're not the sort that go around telling you all the amazing things that they are and they've done, but just to give you a little bit of background as we welcome Anthony, who's going to speak, he, uh, for a couple of years at least, worked alongside Paul Manmering, you know that name, who headed up Bethel's Global Legacy Network. So he was, he, he was the assistant, is that a fair word? Dog's body. The, he was the dog's body that helped ran, run Bethel's Global Network. So, you know, dog's body in Bethel, Bethel Global ne- Network, can't even say it this morning. Um, so, and has a, a rich and, and great experience in, in realms of ministry, leading church, uh, and Katie, pretty much single-handedly from the small amount of research I've done, set up uh, the equivalent of heaven in healthcare in America for Bethel. So just kind of sort of thing. Just, just want to stand a second, Katie, because we're going to look at your husband quite a lot in a minute. But let's just, just in case people don't know who Katie is. So you're in for a treat this morning. Anthony's going to preach, he's going to teach us today. So let's welcome him and, and be blessed. Thank you very much. I'm assuming this is for me. It, it is now, so bless you. Um, I don't know how to follow a picture of Andy saying he's taking off his sweater. So we'll just maybe just pray and seek God and just cleanse and start again, renewing our minds, so Romans says. So um, I want to talk this morning about sacred space. Sacred. Can you hear me okay? Great. I want to talk about sacred space. I want to take a few minutes just to pray um, because I believe that God wants to speak to us about this whole concept and what it means. Um, So maybe just put your hands on the person next to you. If you don't know them, maybe ask them first because that's always a little bit weird. Um, And what I want you to do is pray for the person on your left and your right that God opens the eyes of their heart for what he has for them today. So just let's do that for 10 seconds. Father, we thank you that your word is living and active, which means that it has business to do. When you speak, your word never returns to your mouth void. It always fulfills its purpose. And you've got stuff to do this morning in us and through us. So, Father, would we be good soil? Would we be ready? Would we be prepared? Would we partner with the work of your spirit today so that we can leave this place changed, transformed, having encountered you to change the world? In your name, amen. So, sacred space, what is that? Um, Sacred space is a concept that um, the the Jews would talk about um, that would be used to describe um, that the places on earth where God would dwell, where God would inhabit, it's a physical place where the presence of God lives. And I want to talk about that this morning. And I want to look at why that matters, 
what the Bible teaches us about that rather than just us sharing ideas. And what does this concept mean in terms of the impact on our lives? So what is it, why does it matter, and what difference does it make? Now, I want to start off by saying that the concept of sacred space is a key biblical theme. It runs through the whole Bible, and it starts off in Genesis, and it finishes in Revelation. And when you get a theme in the Bible that starts at the beginning and finishes at the end, it's something that we need to know about, because it actually helps us understand all the other teachings and doctrines of the Bible. It helps us hang things on, collectively build our understanding, and fit things together, like a jigsaw puzzle, yeah? You know when you do a jigsaw puzzle? Um, you start with the edges or the corners, and, and you kind of build around like that. In a funny way, this is what these themes are like. And sacred space is one of those. To kind of um, <clears throat> increase the, 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 um, the importance of this topic, I want to propose that if we don't understand what sacred space is biblically, we won't understand what the holiness of God means. We won't understand about worship and why we worship. We won't understand about the importance of church. We won't understand about the importance of community. And we won't understand the importance of evangelism and mission. If our areas in our thinking in those areas is, is defunct, it's because we don't understand sacred space. So there's, um, I'm going to look at five examples of sacred space and look at five principles in each of them as we go through. So Eden, the Garden of Eden is sacred space. The tabernacle, the temple, the incarnation, and the church. And for each of those five, there's five principles which we're going to unpack. Does that sound good? Yes. Sound good? Okay, we're going to be working hard this morning if that's all right. <laughs> right. It's not 25 points, don't worry, it's not five times five. A 25 point sermon. <laughs> that would be awful. <laughs> okay, so principle one the first principle of sacred space is revelation. Revelation. God originates sacred space. Sacred space is always, always something that is imagined and conceived by God. For example, Eden. Genesis 2.8 tells us that it was God who planted the Garden of Eden. Exodus 25.9 tells us that God showed Moses the plans for the tabernacle. And the bulk of the book of Exodus after that is uh, the plans for Exodus that are being revealed and unveiled to Moses. 1 Chronicles 28.19 is um, David states that the plans that he has for the temple that Solomon ended up building were revealed to him by God. For the incarnation, we see hints all the way through the Old Testament. And obviously the virgin birth shows us that it was God's idea because God was the one who initiated the, uh, the incarnation, the sacred space. And for the church, and when I'm saying the word church, I'm meaning the church in a number of concepts. The first level of the church is the universal church, which is all believers everywhere through all cultures and all periods of history. But I'm also meaning the local church, which is us here right now in Glasgow in Hope Church. And lots of local churches around the world. But also I mean us individually, you and me, because we are part of the church. Well, you can see that throughout Scripture, God's always had a plan for a people that live and are centered around him. 
Sacred space teaches us that God unveils his agenda through revelation. When he wants to do something, he speaks. He reveals. It always comes out from him. So what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us? Well, what's God saying to you through the prophetic? What's God said to you through prophetic words to you? Whether prophetic words you've received from other people or the still small voice that God speaks in, in us, in our hearts, in our spirits. When we read scriptures or when we're worshipping and there's those lyrics that stand out to us in those moments, those sweet moments where we know God's talking to us. Or when we're listening to someone, whether it's their preaching or advice or talking, and just something they say has a, a weight to it, a, a kind of a, an oomph to it that is uh, just a little bit different. What's God saying? Because what God says to us is this revelation, but then the next part of it is what do we do with it? How do we steward it? Because if God's speaking to us, it demands a response. So what's the response he's asking today? What's God speaking to us as Hope Church? What's the prophetic unveiling that he's saying to Hope Church? What's he doing in this season? And what's he wanting to do in the next seasons to come? How do we steward that? What changes do we need to make? What things do we need to start? What things do we need to stop? We can talk about blueprints. We talk about divine strategies. But it all begins with the prophetic. It all begins with that, that divine word that comes from the mouth of God. And stewarding the prophetic is always an interesting tension because sometimes we always have to steward the prophetic in faith. It always has to be faith, not fear. That's why Romans says that if you've got the gift of prophecy, we prophesy in faith. So sometimes stewarding the prophetic in faith means we do something that we're uncomfortable doing. Sometimes stewarding the prophetic in faith means that we actually sit on it and we don't do anything. And depending on what your personality wiring is, that might be really tough. Because some of us may be quite go-getters, aren't we? Well, I have to do something. If I don't do something, I'm going to explode. And the challenge is, can you trust me? Can you trust me? Can you wait? Can you let me be me? Can you let God be God? Be still and know that he's God, like Psalm says. Some of us, maybe we're the other way. We're a bit more laid back. We're a bit more kind of, oh, it's okay. And the challenge for us is to do something, is to move in a direction and move at a speed that we're not maybe comfortable with or would choose. So think of the prophetic words that God's spoken to you about. Do you need to move? Do you need to wait and rest? Because Isaiah 55:11 says that when God speaks, his word always fulfills its purpose. It never returns to his mouth void. He doesn't intend his revelation to be ignored. The beauty of that means that when he speaks, it's also a promise to provide the grace and the power to bring into fulfillment what he's intending in partnership with our faith, our action. Whether that is an action that is a manifest action or an action of rest, of waiting. That's why Jesus said that he only did what he saw the Father doing. Because he was looking to see where God was leading so in faith he could follow. Is that okay? Principle two, construction. Construction. Humanity shapes sacred space. So God reveals this concept of sacred space, but then there's an invitation to us, to humanity, to partner with him in the building and the construction of it. 
Looking at the five examples I, I raised before, Eden, we see that man was the one that tended the garden. God planted it, but man tended it and grew it and cultivated it. The tabernacle, Moses led the people to build it. It's the same with the temple. David passed the plans on to Solomon, who then leads a, a massive building project with the best of the materials and the best of the craftsmen to build this temple, this house of God. The incarnation, there was a partnering because Mary and Joseph raised baby Jesus into a boy, into a teenager, into a man. They were partnering with, the, with what God had, had spoken out. And through the church, the church is shaped through our partnering as we serve, as we lead, as we disciple, as we mature, as we give ourselves to something bigger than ourselves. The church is shaped and grows and matures until, like it says in Ephesians, it displays the glory of God. God loves the intimacy of partnership. He loves it. He's not um, wanting to be some kind of like detached deity up on clouds, up on a throne, miles away, going, oh, look at all the little ant minions I've made running around doing things, ha, 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 getting frustrated because they can't find a parking place at the supermarket and then they pray to me, nice to hear from you. That's not what he's about. He wants to get stuck and he wants to be involved. He created for a purpose. He created for partnership. And it seems to me like the shaping of sacred space takes two forms. There's the teaching of the heart, and there's the training of the hand. The teaching of the heart and the training of the hand. And I'm going to say, to, to sum those up, I'm going to use the words culture and the words structure. Culture and structure. Culture is our beliefs that are acted out. What we believe, but are so convinced of, they actually make a difference to our actions. They manifest and reveal themselves through our lifestyle. That's culture. And structure is the systems or the habits or the routines that we have that actually enable that behavior. Think about it like plants in a greenhouse. A greenhouse is a structure that purely exists to facilitate and accelerate the growing of certain plants. And that's the same thing, that a healthy structure, whether that's a structure in, a, in an organization or a church or an individual, is meant to um, facilitate and enable and empower that culture, those seeds, those values, that attitude in the soil of lives of our hearts. So prophecy then, coming back to the prophetic, is always about provoking us to reevaluate how we think. That's one of the purposes of prophecy. It's showing us the heart and mind of God so that we can repent, renew our mind, and change what we think to line up with what he thinks. Prophecy prompts cultural shift, personally and corporately. So as we talk about culture, and remember, I'm talking about culture on a personal level as well as a church level, okay? Does that make sense? It's about us and about us corporate as well. Culture should always follow the prophetic word of God and serve it. We grow something to partner with what God has spoken. That's the construction, that's the shaping of sacred space. Because the culture, the beliefs, the attitudes, the mindsets, actually is the thing that should shape what we build. That structure, that habit, that routine, that kind of lifestyle, if you like. Because we want to build something that helps and partners and grows what it is that God's put in our hearts. So what we could say is repentance is a change of culture. 
Repentance is a change of culture. The Greek is metano, it's literally a change of heart. It's a change of everything internal that shows itself in the external. Because you can change your external without actually repenting. Because it's always confession and repentance. It's one thing to speak something out, but it's actually another thing for it to to manifest itself in in a life change. So culture without structure might be really exciting. It might be really lively. It might be like, whoa, 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 this is great, this is amazing. But if it doesn't have a structure around it to facilitate it, it lacks focus, it lacks strategy, and it won't yield as much fruit. It will actually be poor stewardship. It's a good thing that fizzles out. And if God's spoken, we don't want things to fizzle out, do we? We want them to sustain and grow. A structure without a culture, whether that's a personal or organizational, might be really tidy, really orderly. It appeals to those of us who have all of our DVDs or CDs or food tins in alphabetical order or color order or whatever it is. But actually, what it can do is quench the work of the Spirit. And that means then it's dependent on human effort. That means it's dependent on human energy and human performance. And we end up doing all the right things, but actually not really doing it from a place of faith. And that's when people get burned out, disillusioned, fed up, and start looking around for different things. So we've got to always build around what God is doing. And that starts with looking at what he's been saying. That makes sense? So what does that mean practically? Are we... Individually, you and me, but are we as a church cultivating invisibly in our lives the beliefs, the values, the mindsets, the attitudes that God has been speaking about? What are we cultivating? Are we cultivating healthy things, unhealthy things? What about what we're building visibly through our habits, through our routines, through our activities, through our lifestyles, our disciplines? Are they healthy? Or are they unhealthy? Do we have behaviours in our life that quench what God wants to do? Or are we building things that actually facilitate and support and sow into the work he wants to do in us, therefore through us? Because whenever God does stuff in us, it's always because he wants to do something through us. And whenever he wants to do something through us, it's never for us, it's for others around us. Encounter isn't about us, it's about others. Always. It's biblical. It's a biblical principle. But if we've got things that are getting in the way, maybe it's a time for change, for repent, to repent, to line up with what God wants to do. Amen? Still with me? Okay. Good. I'm just filling out the room. Because sometimes you do that when you preach. You fill out the room and go, what's going on? Are people looking at you glazed? Are they looking at you because they're angry and they want to throw things at you? Or they look at you because God's speaking to them. And you obviously hope for that last one, but also you are looking out for projectiles, just in case. Okay, principle three, habitation. God inhabits sacred space. In Eden, God walked in the garden in the cool of the day. In the tabernacle, we see that in Exodus 40, God came and filled the tent of meeting with his glory. In the temple, we see it's the same thing. After being dedicated, the Shekinah glory filled the temple and the priests had to fall face down in 2 Chronicles 5. 
In the incarnation, the word became flesh. And in the church, the Holy Spirit fills us and lives within us and makes us his home. So this third principle of sacred space is inhabitation. It's a scriptural principle that God always fills what he forms. He forms things to fill them. We can see that in Genesis 1. When you look at the kind of the created order in Genesis 1, God creates the land and the sky and the sea, but actually days 4, 5, and 6 is him filling the land and the sea and the sky. He always forms and he always fills. Now, forming can be a bit of a painful process. We can call it shaping, we can call it character building, all those lovely words that we say as Christians, which are supposed to make it sound good, but actually is a way of saying this, is hurt, this hurts and it's rubbish. But I'm going to try and be really holy and make out that I'm really spiritual and I'm embracing because it's the will of the Lord and I'm a martyr for Jesus and life sucks, but I can't say that because that makes me seem like a real bad Christian. Or maybe that's just me. Maybe you're all better than me. Okay. But when God forms, it's painful because he chips away and he shapes and he does some readjustment and it's kind of putting things into, uh, maybe dislocate some things and putting some things in. It's painful. But if he's doing it, it's because he's going to fill it. He's going to fill it. So sometimes we need to persevere through the forming in faith because of what he's going to do through it. What he makes, he always invades. And when God moves into something, he makes it holy. It's holy because he moves in. That's why when you see the burning bush, and Moses stood before the burning bush, what did God say to him? Take your feet, your shoes off, because you're on holy ground. It wasn't holy because it was a bush. It wasn't holy because it was a burning bush. Because burning bushes would have been really common in that that climate. It was holy because of the one who was there. So when God moves in, when he inhabits, he makes it holy. So sacred space is only sacred space because of the one who is there. Otherwise, Eden is just a, it's a garden. The tabernacle is a tent. I've been to Bible camps. I hate camping. Tents are not special to me in any way, shape, or form. In fact, I'm pretty sure they're an abomination in some way. Okay, and obviously I know that some of you are looking at me and you disagree with me now, but you can repent because you're wrong. (laughs) I don't understand the pleasure of going somewhere in a rubbish accommodation with rubbish food, with rubbish weather, rubbish clothing, going, yeah, this is amazing because we're doing it for Jesus. Come on. Come on. We made houses now. We move on. We have the internet. (laughs) And also, the people who love the camping the most, who are ladies, often will go, well, I can't take my hair straighteners, can I? So, you know, I'm just saying, it's like, you know, just saying. Sacred space is sacred because of the one who lives there. Which throws up some really interesting things. Because what it means is this, that we're holy, not because of what we do, but because of who lives, what, who lives in us. Holiness is not dependent on behavior. It's dependent on who likes us and lives within us. That doesn't mean that everything that we do is holy, But it means that we're called to live a holy life as a representation and a demonstration of he who is in us. So 1 Corinthians 6, 18 and 19. Most of you have heard this verse. If you've ever been at any kind of talk about sexual purity that they would ever do at youth Bible camps or anything like that, this verse would have been used as a don't do bad things. Your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit. You know that verse? Maybe that's the only time everyone's ever heard that verse. Okay, But listen to the verse. And they think of the onus of how we put this verse. 
Flee from sexual morality. That's a good thing. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. But when we make that verse about flee from sexual morality, your body is a Holy Spirit temple. It makes it very different to what a meaning actually is, which is flee from sexual immorality. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Do you see the difference in the owners there? Paul's saying the reason why we do or don't do the things we do is because of who is in us. God moves into us. He lives in us. He loves us and he likes us. He makes us his home. He makes us clean. He makes us holy. His presence is something so precious, so wonderful, so sacred that he has to make us and do work in us before he comes in us. But he does that work at the cross because his hunger and his desire is to be uh, to connect and joined and, and residing with us because of the intimacy of partnership. He wants to cohabitate with us and every aspect of our life be permeating full of him because he loves to be with us. So what does that mean practically for us? It means we never stop being the house of God. Because he says he'll never leave us or forsake us. The Holy Spirit's not going to leave us. He's not going to abandon us. That's why our salvation is secure. Because he's promised to move in. He won't move out. He said to us he won't move out. Bethel means house of God. But we're all houses of God. We're all little Bethels. Because of who is in us. So the, the, the thinking that we can take with this concept is this, is that is there anything in our life, anything at all in, in how we live, that grieves the Holy Spirit? Anything in us as a church or people that grieves the Holy Spirit? Is there anything that we need to do to deal with so that we can rededicate ourselves as sacred space to him again? Is there anything that we need to close the door on or cut off? Because of who the one inside, the one who lives inside us makes us better than that. We're called to live higher. And he's moved in as a promise, as a deposit. Principle four. Transformation. Transformation. Humanity encounters God within sacred space. So we've seen that God reveals sacred space. Man and God partner to build and construct sacred space. God then moves in and inhabits sacred space. The purpose of it is that we would be transformed. Humanity encountering God in sacred space. We see that in Eden with God talking face to face with Adam and Eve. We see that in the tabernacle with Moses and the high priest, representatives of the people, going into the tent of meeting. We see that in the temple, where people would bring their sacrifices to God. Jesus, the incarnation, was a place of encounter where there was transformation, because he said he's the way, the truth, and the life. No one would get to the Father except through him. A place of transformation. And the church, a place where the Holy Spirit encounters us and changes us. It is impossible, impossible to meet the living God and not be affected. It's impossible. If our relationship with God doesn't significantly impact our life, we're doing it wrong. We are doing it wrong. 
Because we're called to be disciples, which means learners and students, which means change, which means growth, which means learning and unlearning. And if that's not happening in our lives, we're doing it wrong. We've reduced Christianity to a fuzzy, fizzy thing that's more about us, but it's not about that. It's not about that. It's never just about us. It's always about others. That doesn't work very well for us in the West because we can buy whatever we want on Amazon. We can go to whatever supermarket we want and buy whatever we want. And if we can't get it, we can get a bit angry, slag them off on Twitter, and then go and buy it online. We can get really consumerist. We can get really self-centered. And I'm not saying choice is a bad thing, but I'm saying that choice can become an idol because what it means is that we become a big deal in our own eyes. We can make ourselves a bit like kings and queens because whatever I want, I should be able to have. And if I can't have it, then there's something wrong with you because you can't provide that for me. And we've got to manage that and think about what that means. When we encounter God, we're changed. And the beauty of the gospel is that we don't have to get changed before we meet God. We meet God to be changed. We don't have to get ourselves all presented and pretty to go to God. Because that's religion. We go to God with whatever mess, whatever stain, whatever you know, issues we've had, and God accepts us. He accepts us, but still changes us. Because accepting us doesn't mean he accepts everything that we do, but he looks past that because he loves us. That's why it's a throne of grace, Hebrews says. It's a throne of grace. We can always come before him, always come to him with a throne of grace. He doesn't ever say, enough. He doesn't ever say, you're done now. You've used up your credits. Go away. The person next to you I'm more interested in. He isn't like that. He's a good father. So when we think about this whole concept of of transformation and and kind of the inhabitation of God, I want to just throw something out. Do we, as in individually or as a church, have a mindset of visitation or do we have a mindset of habitation? What do I mean by that? One of those says, God, come and meet me. God, and come and meet me. You're up there. Come down. Come down and meet me. Come and meet me. But the other one says, God, you are in me already. You live within me. So rise up within me so that I can encounter you. One is Old Testament and one is New Testament. Because one says, God, you're out there. I have to plead and conjole and hope that the lighting is totally right and the warmth of the building is totally okay and the musicians are just right enough with their chord changes and their plinky, plinky things I don't understand. And I have to have brought myself perfectly clean and holy just in case because I don't want to have anything, God, to stop you from coming down to me as if it's all about us. But actually, the other one is God's already moved into us. So if he's already moved in, he's here. It's easy to meet with him. It's easy to meet with him because it's just connecting with the one who's already made us a home. Do you see the difference? In John 7, Jesus said that out of our heart would flow rivers of living water. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. Out of our heart. That's not outside in. That's inside out. Theologically, the, 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 the word temple is, uh, basically describes a place of encounter throughout the scriptures. So Eden was a temple. It was the first temple because it was a place of encounter. And if you follow through what I'm talking about with sacred space, it's this. Eden was a temple. The tabernacle was a temple. The temple was a temple. The 
The incarnation, Jesus, he was a temple. He was a place of encounter. The church is a temple. You are a temple. You are a place of encounter. You are a place of encounter for you. And you are a place of encounter for other people. The same spirit that rose Jesus up from the dead is in you. The same spirit that rose up Jesus physically and bodily in the resurrection is in you. Fully, without abandon, without restriction, without limitation, without inhibition, he is in you fully. The same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. You are a place of encounter, first for you and then for others around you, whether they know him or don't know him. Which means this. When we are in situations where you're like, Jesus, you have to talk here. You have to do something here. What do I say or what do I do? God, come, God, come. He's already there because you're there. And it's not because we're amazing, it's because of he who is in us. But that's how it works. Sacred space. We're like mobile encounters. Which means that you make a difference in your place of work. You make a difference in your place of education. You make a difference in your family or your home. You make a difference to every person you speak to. Because if the kingdom of God is, is righteousness, joy and peace, that means you are an encounter when people can encounter the righteousness of God. People can encounter the peace of God, the joy of God, the love of God. By being you and by letting him in you shine through. Changing you, shaping you from the inside out. Amen? So what does that mean? What giftings has God given you? What anointings has he given you? us as people or us as a church? What are those unique graces and abilities that he just has his fingerprints on? Because they're not for us to be like, yeah, I can do this. They're for other people to get a glimpse of the glory of God. They're for other people to get a glimpse of the goodness and the glory of God. As an invitation, as a taster. Taste and see that he is good. And that's what the, that's what the prophetic does. That's what the word of knowledge does. That's what compassion does. That's what hospitality does. That's what serving does. All those spiritual gifts we don't think are quite as sexy as the other ones, but actually are still listed there because they manifest and represent and demonstrate the heart of God. Not just for us, but for others. And not just for others who know him, but for others who don't know him. So what are we doing with our gifts? Do we need to stir them up? Do we need to stop comparing ourselves to other people? I don't do that quite as good as they do. Or I don't do that one at all. Do we need to stop shutting them down? Or actually, can we start creatively asking God, what can I do with this thing you've given me? What does this look like in my context, in my situation? Because God loves partnership. What would it look like? What would it look like to use a godly gift of hospitality in a workplace? What does it look like to use a godly gift of compassion in a place of education? What does it look like to use the prophetic or the words of knowledge? What does it look like? And yet, obviously, healings as well, of course. But what about some of those other spiritual gifts that we kind of think, oh, they're spiritual. They're like the unspiritual spiritual gifts. You've got the spiritual spiritual gifts, and then you've got the unspiritual spiritual gifts. 
You know what I'm saying, though, don't we? Yeah. Yeah. It's a normal spiritual gift. But that doesn't even make sense, does it? A normal spiritual gift? Because God will move through it and meet people and encounter people through it. Because it shows his love, his joy, his peace, his righteousness. So for some of us, we just need to embrace what he's given us and we need to steward it and use it more. And be okay that it doesn't, it's not the same as the person next to us or it doesn't look like that. That's okay. Because the last time I checked, we're all a body, we're all different and we've all got variety and disunity. And honour means that we learn off everybody anyway because all of us manifest God in a different way. So actually, I can look at someone and go, wow, they do that amazingly. That says that about God to me. And in a weird way, they become an encounter to me to look upwards and worship. And I really like the gift of hospitality from other people. I received that one really well. So, you know. Principle five. Last point. Are you with me? Great. Principle five. Commission. Commission. God sends humanity out from sacred space to change the world. So God reveals sacred space. Man and God construct sacred space. God inhabits sacred space. Humanity is transformed by sacred space. And then God sends man out. They commission to, from sacred space to change the world. Eden, from the garden. Now, this is interesting. I'm sure you know this. but the, So Adam's tending the garden, you know, doing whatever he does with little scissors, bonsai trees, or whatever, you know, all those things. I kill bonsai trees. I've got an anointing for it, so I, I, I need discipleship. Um, but he's tending the garden. But the call to Adam was to subdue the earth, to multiply, to fill it. Which means this, he's tending the garden, but he's also got to go to the parts of the earth that are not Eden. So there's Eden and not Eden. So he's got to expand Eden into the parts of the earth that are not Eden. It's a picture of the kingdom. It's going to the places where God doesn't dwell to make it a place where God dwells. Even in Eden, that concept of the kingdom of God is there in the beginning. But there's that sending out to change the world. The tabernacle in the temple, the Old Testament shows us that Israel as a people were actually meant to be a people that demonstrated the glory of God to the, the, the nations that didn't know God. What it was actually meant to be is they were meant to look at the Israelites, look at the Jews, the Hebrews, and be like, you guys are different. You guys worship differently, and when you know, there's a covenant, you read it in Deuteronomy 28. When they keep the covenant, there's God's like, there's no famine, there'll be no war, there'll be no pestilence, you'll know prosperity, you'll know abundance. The whole point was not so they would go, yay, look at us, we're, we're really blessed. It's but like people would go, why don't you have any of these things happen to you? And they go, because we walk with our God in relationship. And, they, and then people would say, tell us about your God. Tell us about your God. That was the whole point. And the temple and the tabernacle are that center point about reminding the people to go out and be witnesses, be missionaries. The incarnation, Jesus said he came to seek and save the lost. And he sent out the apostles in the Great Commission. So even there, there's that commissioning, that sending out. And then the church, we as a church, collectively and as individuals, are meant to be filled with the Holy Spirit to be witnesses. Acts 1.8, I love this verse. If you don't believe anything I've said about the whole day and you've been playing Angry Birds on your phone, that's okay. But this one thing, this one verse, okay, Acts 1.8, it tells us that encounter is always, always for the purpose of mission because that verse says to the disciples, go to Jerusalem, 
There you'll be filled with power with the Holy Spirit. <gasps> Whoa, power! Yeah, I love the power. I love the manifestations. Well, there's another bit of the verse to read. You'll be filled with power in the Holy Spirit so you can be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. The whole point of being invaded by the power of God was to take the power of God, the presence of God, out to those who didn't know him, to reveal him. That's the whole point. Because if God's going to commission, he's going to equip. He's not going to send us somewhere like going, off you go, see ya, enjoy it. You might need some stuff. Oh well, I'm busy over here making some planets. He always gives us, he always equips and it's probably a bit scary, but that's where faith comes in. It's always about faith, because faith means that we have to look at him for who he is, trust that he is who he says he is, and he does what he says he does. And then we grow in our understanding and revelation of him, because he reveals himself in a way that we previously only maybe knew in our head, not our heart. And that way, our knowledge of him has grown. Therefore, our worship life is deepened, and that way God gets glory, and we get the beauty of that relationship. That's why it has to be faith. Otherwise, it's formulaic, and we actually don't need God, because we just copy and imitate, and God's not into that. The purpose of encounter is always to be equipped, to be empowered, to be changed, so that we can show him through our words, our works, and our wonders. Which means that we should never just stop with encounter and go, oh, that was nice. Yes, we enjoy God, and we enjoy encountering God, of course, but it's so that we're changed and empowered for a mission, to do, to act, to go, to go. Gathering around the presence is essential. That's the whole concept of sacred space, you gather around the presence. But the point is to take the presence to those who are outside the presence. If we don't do that, we are just a holy club, having our own little funny meetings, being a little bit weird, but we're all being weird together, so it's all okay. And actually, we're not doing what we're meant to do, which is being cultural change agents to the planet, which is what apostolic really is about. We won't be an apostolic people, we'll be a bizarre people. So let's enjoy the prophetic, let's enjoy healings, let's enjoy miracles, but let's not gather around them and make them the center point. Because signs and wonders are signs that point us upwards and they're wonders that make us and others go, wow, God, you're amazing. I need to know more about you. They are advents and signs of the kingdom because they reveal the king to win worshippers. Evangelism, because I know evangelism is a bit of a funny word, like, oh, I've got to talk to people about Jesus and I don't know, I don't know like apologetics and words and I don't know my Bible very well and what if they ask me about suffering? I don't know what I think about suffering. Oh, I don't know. What do I do? Oh, uh, yeah, what do you do every weekend? I really, Saturday, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sunday I went to church and oh, uh, you know. But evangelism without encounter becomes dependent on our morality, our good life or our intelligence in able to answer questions. No one's going to sustain themselves in the kingdom if it's based on my lifestyle, I can guarantee you that, or my intelligence, guarantee you that. But encounter without evangelism is self-serving. One flows into the other. So the application is this. Who has God called us to be missionaries to as a church and as people? 
What persons, what people groups has he placed before us? Who do you come into contact with at work, at your place of education, at the school gates? Who are the people that he's just put in front of you? Maybe he's put people as a burden on your heart. But if he hasn't, who's there? Because I don't know if you've noticed, non-believers are everywhere. There's a lot of them. So knowing who your neighbours are is a really good thing. But in Acts, when the disciples were going to get talked to the Pharisees because they were going to get told off, boldness came upon them. So what do you need? What do I need? What do we need to reveal him in us to those who don't know him? Maybe boldness. But that's okay. Because he loves to give that boldness. So we've talked about revelation. We've talked about construction. We talked about habitation, transformation, and commission. What I want to do before we have the children coming back and people have got to leave is just have a response time because you always preach for a response. Whether that response is people standing up or not, it's always a, a change. Hello. There's probably going to be a lot of people with this response as well. So we're not, I'm not into like a public confession of sin and weakness and all that kind of stuff because, you know, we can do business with God ourselves. But there is a, there is a sense of a power of like a, making a statement, I think, for like a kind of an accountability or a, even a, a um, speaking to yourself and say, right, I'm doing this. So I have five points. So I've got five kind of areas of response. I'm going to say them all. And then if any one, two, three, four, five resonate with you, just stand up. No one's going to ask you what you're responding to. No one's going to have that conversation with you. If you want to have that with other people, great. But no one's going to seek you out. And we will just have a little bit of time of doing some business with God. Is that okay? Okay, so first one is for the people, and wait until I've said all five before you stand up. No one wants to, you know, oh, I've stood up too early. Now everyone knows my sin. Oh. Number one, if we talked about revelation, if you know that you need a fresh word of direction from God, in a minute, I'd like you to stand. Number two, the construction. You know, whether it's today as I've been preaching or in the run-up today, because I think God's done some foreground work for me, God started to ask you to cultivate or build something in your life that's a little bit different, that you've not done before. If that's you and you think you're going to say yes to God and accept that challenge, I want you to stand in a minute. Number three, we talked about habitation. If you know you just need a fresh encounter with the Holy Spirit, then I want you to stand. Number four is transformation. If you know that God's convicted you of something and you know you need to repent of something, I want to invite you to stand. And number five is commission. If you know that you want to uh, pick up the call again to be a missionary, to be a, uh, one who goes and takes the presence to those who don't know the presence, then I want you to stand. If you're going to say, yeah, I'm going again. So that's you need a fresh word. You're saying yes to something God's asked you to do. You need a fresh encounter. You know you need to repent of something. Or you're saying yes to reaching out to those around you again. If that's any of you, I'd love you to stand. Okay, I'm just going to invite the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Holy Spirit, 
Thank you, you're here within us. So would you come? Lord, I pray you would just start to speak to people. You're the spirit of wisdom and revelation. So you reveal the unknown to us and you give us the wisdom to know what to do with it. So some of you who are, um, if, you've got, if we've got a ministry team, if you could guys could come out, that'd be amazing. Um, here's a couple of little action points for some of you. For those of you who stood up needing a fresh word of direction from God, in a minute, I'd love you to come to, to the ministry team and say that, and they will prophesy over you. They're not going to pray for you, they're going to prophesy over you, okay? If they start praying for you, ask them not to and give you a prophetic word, okay? So the ministry team might need to start praying for each other in a minute, that's fine. But that's your action point. That's your action point. Because sometimes we pray and sometimes we just need to do something. Number two, for those of you who know that you've been called to cultivate or build something in your life, I want to propose to you that you connect with someone who's a friend and just invite them into that process for accountability, for support, for advice. For those of you who know you needed an encounter with the Holy Spirit, again, I want to invite you to come and get some ministry. For those of you who feel like God's calling you to repent, I want you to spend some moments just doing some alone business with God and work that out with him. And if you feel like you want to involve somebody else in that, that's amazing. But definitely talk about it with God because you're a temple. You're a temple of the Holy Spirit. He's in you. He's not ashamed of you. He's not ashamed of you. He accepts you. And lastly, I want to go after the missionary one publicly, if that's okay, with everybody, because I feel like that's a one for all of us here. Yeah. So, Father, would you come in power, Holy Spirit. Lord, we know that when you come, you equip so you can send. So, Father, would you anoint every single one of us with boldness and clarity, Lord? Would you give us fresh eyes to see who it is that we're called to reach, who it is that we're called to um, demonstrate you to? And, Lord, wisdom in how to do that well and wisely. We don't want to be crazy people who just put people off by being over the top. But, Lord, also, we want to be bold. So, Father, I pray we would know not only what to say, but how to live, what to do. Lord, when we just need to be supportive encouragement and when it's actually time to speak. Lord, I pray for divine connections this week, Lord, and divine strategies for taking the presence out. Because we're called here to be a showcase of you to the world. In your name, Jesus. Amen.